Chapter Nineteen of Forest Days by G. P. R. James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Nineteen. The impediments of life at which we fret and chafe in early years, and which we view with stern doubt and disappointment in that after period when the shortness of the space left to us renders each moment really as valuable as it only seems to be in the eagerness of youthful impatience. The impediments of life, I say, the things that check us in our impetuous course and force us to pause and to delay, how often are they blessings instead of curses? How often is the object which they dash from our outstretched hand an evil rather than the good that we esteemed it? Hugh de Mothema, as we have shown, rode away from the castle of Hereford about half an hour before Prince Edward. He chose the very road, and went on at great speed for about three miles. Then he turned his horse into a path somewhat different from that which the prince had chosen, but leading nearly in the same direction, and in that he proceeded at a rate which gave his five servants some trouble in keeping up with him. At length, however, his horse suddenly went lame, and on dismounting to see what was the matter, he found that a nail had run into the frog of the animal's foot, and although it was easily extracted, yet it was impossible to proceed at the same pace as before. "'Give me your horse, Peterkin,' he said, halting and take mine slowly back to Hereford. While the servant was changing the saddle, however, a countryman appeared on the road, driving some swine before him, and Hugh immediately walked up to him, asking, "'Is this the way, my friend, to Monnington Chapel?' "'No, no,' replied the man. "'You must go back. You should have taken the first turning on your left.' "'Lord, now, only to think of your not knowing your way to Monnington Chapel.' "'What's the hour?' asked Hugh. "'Just midday,' answered the man. "'Don't you see the sun?' "'Then there is time,' said Hugh de Mothema, "'and mounting the servant's horse he retrod his steps for some distance. "'Just as he was approaching the turning, however, "'which the man had directed him to take, "'he heard a loud whistling scream which made him look up to the sky, "'thinking that some eagle, a bird then very common in the marches of Wales, "'had come close above his head.' but nothing of the kind was to be seen, and a moment after the same cry was repeated, while one of the servants, who were riding a little way behind, exclaimed, "'It is the dwarf, my lord, it is Tangil. See where he comes at full speed, like a monkey on a racehorse?' Hugh de Mothema paused for a moment and turned his eyes down the road from Hereford, up which the dwarf was coming. Not mounted on his forest pony, but perched upon the back of a tall charger, with his head just seen between the ears of the animal, his long arms stretched out holding the bridle somewhat short, and his equally lengthy legs hanging down, affording no bad type for the old figure of nobody. The boy was speedily by Hugh de Mothema's side, shaking his head reproachfully as he came, and saying, "'Ah, you would not listen to Tangil, man-at-arms. Nobody listens to Tangil. And why?' "'because he has not got a skin like a sucking pig "'and a face such as boys cut out of a turnip. "'Now, if any of these bottle-nosed beer-drinkers "'had told you to stay and listen, "'you would have waited by the hour. 
"'Not I,' replied Hudemothema. "'Nor can I wait now, good Tangel. "'So come on, and make haste with your story, by the way. "'What is it you want to tell me?' "'Aye, haste, haste,' cried Tangel, "'turning his horse and keeping by the side of the young lord, "'always hasting to destruction, "'and slow to anything good. "'Now are you riding out here without knowing, "'without knowing where you are going "'or who it is that has sent for you?' "'And pray, if you are wiser, Tangel,' said Hugh with a smile, "'let me know where it is I am going to, "'and who it is that has sent for me.' "'Going to a prison,' cried Tangel, "'and he who sent for you is a traitor.' "'Are you serious?' demanded Hugh, "'turning gravely towards him. "'No, never was merrier in my life,' answered Tangel, "'grinning till he showed his fine white teeth, "'running back almost to his ears.' "'Is it not enough to make me merry to see a man who calls himself wise "'put his head into a noose like a woodcock? "'Now I will chastise you as the priest of the chapel did me one day when he was drunk. "'Did you not receive a letter to-day?' "'Yes, I did,' replied Hugh. "'Who gave you that letter?' demanded Tangel. "'One of the servants of the noble Earl of Leicester,' answered Hugh. "'Ha!' said the boy. "'They are cunninger than I thought.' "'And, moreover,' added the young nobleman, "'I asked the servant from whom he had received it, "'and he told me from one of the attendants of the Earl of Ashby.' "'And who did the Earl of Ashby's ton of flesh get it from?' demanded the dwarf. "'I will tell you, for you know nothing about it yourself. "'He got it from gallant, sweet, honest, pretty Richard de Ashby "'before he ran away from Hereford last night. "'I heard him.' "'when he thought there were no ears listening. "'For I watched him all over the place "'as soon as I found he was in Hereford, "'creeping after him like a shadow. "'He gave me a blow once in Nottingham "'and called me ape and devil. "'But the ape was at his heels last night "'when he and his fair cousin Alured "'were plotting to go over to Gloucester. "'And I heard him say that he would have you in a net "'before four and twenty hours were over.' "'He might have found himself mistaken, Tangel,' replied Hugh, "'for I had my misgivings. "'Although I have not often seen the Lady Lucy's handwriting, "'I suspected that the note was not hers, "'and though he told me to come alone, "'I brought five stout fellows with me, as you see, "'intending to leave them within call. "'I think we six might be quite enough to deal with any force "'they would dare to bring within seven miles of Hereford.' "'The dwarf laughed aloud paused and then laughed again but in his wayward fashion he would not explain the cause of his merriment let hugh say what he would mighty cunning mighty cunning he cried now if you have any luck you may catch the fowler in his trap but yet if you be wise you will ride back to hereford and take a nuncheon at the maypole no replied hugh pausing for an instant and beckoning to his followers to come up no i will not i know richard de ashby's force right well and we five are worth any ten he can bring against us i would give a capful of gold pieces to take that traitor back with me and nail his ears to the castle gates but we must lay our plan securely the place appointed is monnington chapel and there surely must be some place near it where i can conceal the men "'Why, my lord,' said one of his followers, "'just on this side of it is little Bilberry Wood. "'I know it well. 
and then beyond is the great wood of Monnington. We can find cover in either, for a thousand spears if it were necessary. I forget the place, though I have seen it often, replied Hugh, and musing over what the dwarf had told him, he rode on till the highway entered a little copse intersected by numerous paths. The width of the whole wood might be about a hundred and fifty yards, though the length to the right and left of the road which they followed was not less than a couple of miles, and as the young nobleman and his train issued forth again on the other side, they perceived at a short distance before them a small chapel to which the name of a shrine would have been more appropriate, for the largest congregation that it could contain was certainly thirty persons at the utmost. Hugh de Mothama's arrangements were soon made. Drawing back as soon as possible, lest anyone should observe his movements, he stationed his men under cover of the wood, and then advanced alone to the chapel, the door of which was open, as usual with all places of worship at that time. Before he entered, however, he paused to gaze over the scene on the other side of the building, which presented, first, an open green expanse covered with short grass, dotted with tufts of fern, and then, with the interval of about a third of a mile, a deep, sombre wood, extending to a considerable distance on both sides. The ground all round was perfectly clear, and the copse, where he had left his men, so near at hand that it was impossible for him to be taken at a disadvantage by a larger force than his own, without having due warning of its approach. Hugh looked up towards the sun, saying to himself, "'And half an hour before the time, I should imagine. "'We shall have a storm ere long.' "'And fastening his horse to a hook fixed in the stonework, "'apparently for that purpose, he entered the chapel, which was quite vacant. "'Above the altar appeared the figure of the Virgin, "'and kneeling for a moment, as usual with all persons of his faith, "'Hugh repeated a short prayer, and then rising,' gazed out of a window which turned towards the larger wood at the back. The sky was becoming rapidly clouded, and though the sun shone high in heaven, it only served to render the thick, thronged mass of vapours that were rolling up from the southwest more dark and lowering in appearance than would have been the case had they not been contrasted with the warm glow of the zenith. Soon, however, swelling up like the waves of an ocean of molten lead, the white edges of the thunder-cloud covered the disk of the sun, bringing with them an oppressive heat very different from the mild but fresh air which had prevailed during the morning. Still Hugh de Mothama kept his eye fixed upon the wood, and after watching for several minutes he thought he could distinguish, through the boles of the trees, a human form moving slowly along at the very verge. It disappeared again, and for a few moments nothing more was perceived, so that Hugh at length began to think he had been in error. He soon found that such was not the case, for after a short pause a man on foot issued forth a step or two, and was seen to look carefully round him. He then gazed down the road towards Hereford, and put his hand over his eyes as if to shade them from the light. Apparently satisfied, he retired to the wood again, after having continued his investigations for about three or four minutes. It was evident he was watching for someone, and Hugh naturally concluded it was himself. The young nobleman paused, meditating how he should act. 
at one moment thinking of showing himself in order to bring the affair to a speedy issue, but the next, judging it would be better to remain in the chapel till the hour appointed had arrived. While he was still hesitating, a vivid flash of lightning that almost blinded him burst forth from the cloud and appeared to sweep close past the chapel. Some large drops of rain fell at the same time, and after another and another flash, succeeding each other with extraordinary rapidity, the floodgates of the heavens seemed to open, and the torrent poured down, mingling hail with the rain, and forming foaming yellow pools at every indentation of the road. Incessantly through the twilight of the storm the broad blue glare of the lightning was seen, with a thin, bright, fiery line crossing the tissue of the flame, and marking its fierce and destructive character, while the rolling peal of the thunder seemed to shake the very earth, echoing and re-echoing from the woods around. "'Those poor fellows will be half drowned,' thought Hugh de Mothema. "'I have a great mind to call them into the chapel, or it might lose me my opportunity. Yet if I were sure of catching that villain and carrying him to Hereford, ay, or of meeting him with double my numbers, I would myself swim the wire a dozen times. Ah, surely that was the tramp of a horse's feet. Another clap of thunder, however, drowned all other sounds, but when it had passed away, the noise of a horse's hoofs beating the ground at a quick pace distinctly reached the young nobleman's ear. Hugh de Mothema listened. There is but one, he said. I will take no odds against him. And he loosened his sword in the scabbard, keeping behind the angle of the building so as not to show himself too soon at the half-open door. The next instant the horse stopped opposite the chapel. The rider was heard to spring to the ground, and after a moment's delay, in order, it seemed, to secure the beast from straying, the stranger's foot was heard ascending the steps. Hugh de Mothema advanced to confront him, but instantly drew back again, exclaiming in a tone of strong astonishment, "'Prince Edward!' "'Hugh de Mothema,' cried Edward, "'this is strange meeting, old companion.' "'It is indeed, my dear lord,' replied Hugh. "'It becomes me not to ask how or why you are here, "'but I will confess that it rejoices my very heart "'to see you at liberty, "'though I doubt not many men would say, "'if they knew of our meeting, "'that I ought to arrest and bring you back to Hereford.' "'He would be a bold man,' answered the prince, raising his towering form to its full height. "'He would be a bold man who would attempt, single-handed, to stop Edward of England on his way.' "'Alas, my lord,' replied Hugh de Mothema, "'I have not even that excuse to give to those who may blame me. "'One shout from that door would bring fearful odds against you, "'for, to tell the truth, I am waiting here to catch that arch-traitor Richard de Ashby in his own net.' "'and I have left men in the little wood you have just passed. "'But once more, I say, I rejoice to see you free.' "'Then indeed I thank you, Hugh,' replied the prince. "'I thank you from my heart for your sincere love, "'though, if I judge rightly, I am not so unprotected as I seem.' "'The young nobleman took the hand that Edward held out to him "'and kissed it respectfully, saying, I would not betray you, my lord, for the world, were you here alone and I at the head of hundreds. But ere we part, I must ask you one boon. Nay, let us not part yet, rejoined Edward. There is much to be said between us, Hugh. 
I have taken shelter here from the storm. You are here also, and while the elements rage without, let us talk of giving peace to the land. That is the object of the boon I crave, my lord, answered Hugh, but I can stay no longer with you than to name that boon. No, not even to hear you concede or refuse it, else I shall be held a traitor to that cause which I believed to be sacred. The boon is this. When you have joined the Earl of Gloucester, when you see yourself at the head of armies, and when you feel your royal mind at liberty to act with power and success, publish a proclamation pledging yourself to uphold all those laws and ordinances which have been enacted for the safety of the land, for the rights and liberties of the people, and for our protection from foreign minions and base favourites, laws and ordinances to which you have once already given your consent. If you do this, I myself will never draw the sword against you, nor do I believe will Simon de Montfort. Edward shook his head with a look of doubt. De Montfort is ambitious, Hugh, he said. Perhaps he was not always so, for many a man begins a patriot and ends a tyrant. At that moment the sound of a horn was heard from the little neighbouring copse, and Hugh de Mothamer advanced to the door of the chapel, knowing that it was the signal of danger. The scene that presented itself was curious. The rain was still pouring down, heavy and grey. The air was dim and loaded. The flashes of the lightning were blazing through the sky, and seemed to the eyes of the young nobleman to be actually running along the ground. At the same time, rushing towards him with rapidity almost superhuman, was the poor dwarf Tangel, throwing about his long, lean arms in the most grotesque manner, and pointing ever and anon to the opposite wood, issuing forth from which appeared a body of at least three hundred horse, well armed and mounted, and coming down at full speed towards the chapel. Hugh turned one look more into the building and waved his hand, exclaiming, Adieu, my lord, adieu! Here is danger, near! And gaining his horse's side, he unhooked the bridle and leapt into the saddle. Up, Tangel, up behind me, he cried as the dwarf came nigh. Up quick, or they will be upon us. The dwarf sprang up behind him in a moment, with one single bound from the ground, and Hugh, turning the bridle towards the little copse, dashed on at full speed. The servant's horse, however, which he was riding, was not a very fast one. The troop from the wood was coming forward with great rapidity, and seemed determined to chase him. His own force was too small to offer any resistance, and Hugh de Mothama saw with bitterness of spirit that if the adversary still pursued, he must soon be a prisoner. To be so deceived and foiled added anger to the grief he felt at the prospect of captivity, and he muttered to himself, They shall pay dearly for it at all events, while he still spurred on towards the copse from which his own men were now approaching, leading the horse on which the dwarf had joined them. Mount your beast quickly, cried Hugh, turning his head to Tangel. Go on, go on, fast, good master, cried the boy. Do not halt for me. I will mount without your stopping. Only carry me close enough to the beast and in a moment after, as Hugh rode swiftly up towards his followers, the boy put his hand upon the young nobleman's shoulders, sprang up with his feet on the charger's haunches, and then with a leap and a shrill cry, he lighted on his own horse, whirled himself round and dropped into the saddle. No time, indeed, was to be lost, 
for Hugh and his attendants met midway between the building and the wood, when one end of the enemy's line already reached the chapel. And, at that moment, Edward himself darted out upon the steps and shouted aloud, "'Halt! I command you, halt! Lord Lovell, Sir Thomas Grey, I charge you, halt! Chase him not, I say, Sir Richard de Ashby!' he continued, raising his voice till it seemed to vie with the thunder, as he saw that his orders were unheeded. "'Halt on your life! Will you disobey my first command?' But Richard de Ashby was deaf, and dashed on with five or six others, while the rest of their party drew the rein, some sooner, some later, pausing in a broken line. Eudemuthama and his men spurred forward at the full gallop, but the slippery ground, now thoroughly soaked by the pelting rain, defeated his effort to escape an attack. The horse of one of his followers floundered, and fell some forty yards before they reached the copse, and though both man and beast staggered up again, the pursuers were too near to be evaded. Some ten yards in advance of the rest, mounted upon a fleet black horse, was Richard de Ashby himself. He was fully armed with hauberk and shield and spear, but his aventai was open, and a glow of savage satisfaction might be seen upon his countenance. Hugh de Mothama turned in the saddle to measure the distance between them with his eye, saw in a moment that escape was not possible, but that vengeance was, and snatching from the man next to him a spear and small round buckler, he wheeled his horse, struck the sharp spur furiously into its flanks, and met his pursuer in full career. The young knight himself was clothed in nothing but a hokoton of purple sendal, which, though stiffly stuffed with cotton, as was then customary, afforded poor protection against the point of a lance. But the tournament and the battlefield had been the young nobleman's ballroom and his school, his place of amusement and his place of practice, and his eye was always ready to discover, his hand prepared to take advantage of the slightest movement of an enemy. He perceived in an instant that Richard de Ashby's lance was aimed at his throat, but he showed by no sign that he knew such was the case, till he was within a yard of his enemy. Then, suddenly raising his buckler, he turned the point aside, and at the same instant he somewhat lifted his own spear, which, as he had no rest, was charged upon his thigh, intending to strike his adversary full in the face. But Richard de Ashby bent his head, and the lance touching him high upon the forehead, glanced off from the skull, and catching in the hood of his mail, hurled him headlong from his charger to the ground. Hugh drew up his horse suddenly by the side of the fallen man, and shortening the spear, held it to his throat, shouting aloud to those who followed, "'If any one comes near, he dies!' By this time his own attendants had rejoined him, and two or three gentlemen came riding down at a quick pace from the chapel, calling upon their companions who had gone before to halt and come back. "'Did you not hear the prince's voice?' exclaimed an elderly knight angrily as he approached. "'It is his express commands that you come back. "'Depart, Lord Hugh, depart in peace. "'It is the prince's will, and we obey.' "'Had I but one half your numbers, Lord Lovell,' answered Hugh, "'I would not go without taking this traitor with me.' "'Or being taken yourself,' replied Lord Lovell, with a laugh, "'I can assure you, my good lord, we had every intention of carrying you with us into Worcestershire, 
but as the principal let the bird out of the trap which poor Richard baited so nicely for him, he must e'en use his wings. There is no help for it. You seem to have pecked the fowler pretty handsomely, however. I believe you have cleft his skull. There, let his people come up and help him. You have my word against treachery. I fear he is not punished as much as he deserves, replied Hugh de Mothama. Bear my dutiful thanks to the prince for his courtesy. And now fare you well, my Lord Lovell. I trust we shall soon meet again. Thus saying, he turned his horse and rode quickly but thoughtfully back to Hereford. End of chapter 19